A week from today is Palm Sunday, uh, marking the beginning of what we call Holy Week, where we remember the most important seven-day period in all of human history. And although the week culminates in Easter, the majority of the week is devoted to the progression toward that good Friday afternoon when Jesus suffered and died so that people like me and you can, can believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross and find forgiveness from God. And this gospel message means so much to me that I like to share it with uh, my friends who don't follow Jesus. But guess what? Sometimes my friends push back. Uh, for example, I'll say to a friend, uh, I was separated from God uh, by my sin, but God came in the person of Jesus who died on the cross for my sin, and as I believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross, I receive God's forgiveness, and I have a personal relationship with God. And I'm hoping my friend will say, that's awesome. I want that forgiveness too. But often my friends don't say that. In fact, sometimes my friends will even push back and say things like, I don't get it. Why do I need Jesus? Why do I need the cross? If God is love, why doesn't he just forgive me and just forgive everybody else while he's at it? I mean, if God is love, it doesn't seem very loving that he would make Jesus go through all that suffering for me or anybody else. If God can do anything, why doesn't he just wave his hand and forgive me and just save all the trouble of all the suffering for Jesus and the cross? And then I say, hamana, 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 hamana. And I, after I stumble around a little bit, I, uh, after that I say, how grateful I am to have you as a friend. Uh, when you ask those kinds of good questions, because then I get to study scripture for the good answers. And today, I'd like to share with you a few thoughts uh, from my study of John, who happens to be one of the closest friends that Jesus had while he was on earth. The Gospels record that Jesus had three closest friends when he uh, was on earth, Peter, James, and John. John spent hours and hours listening to Jesus, and then he poured out the wisdom that he received from Jesus in the form of letters that can be uh, read and uh, God can speak through to Christ followers like me and you, such as John's first letter, chapter two, where we see this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in these words, John teaches something that's really profound about how God's forgiveness works. 
He got this right from Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to show how we see in John's words um, a picture where John pulls back the curtain so we can see how God's forgiveness works behind the scenes. But before we look behind the curtain, uh, we need to go back to the first chapter of this John's letter to which John refers when he says, my dear children, I write this. Write what? Well, back in the first chapter of this letter, John writes, this is the message we have heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. This is a key truth that John got from Jesus. In Jesus' teaching, darkness is a metaphor for sin, and so God is light means that God is perfectly pure and there is nothing remotely immoral in him, which is Jesus' summary of the entire Old Testament teaching about who God is in his holiness, where the word Holy is a Hebrew word meaning separate and refers to the truth that God cannot touch evil or have any relationship with those who have this darkness over them and in their hearts. And this is at least part of the answer to my friend who says, if God is love, then why can't he just wave his hand and forgive everybody? Well, the answer is that God cannot treat my sin with a wink and a wave and ah, forget about it, because before the truth that God is love, there comes another truth, that God is light. It is true, in this letter, John conveys the message that Jesus brought to him that God is love, comes three chapters later. In fact, 1 John chapter four, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in him. But before the truth that God is love, first comes the companion truth that God is light. These are equal truths, but the truth that God is light comes first in scripture because it comes first in God's revelation to the world of who he is. And there is so much I can never understand about a relationship with God unless I first understand that God is light. Unless I understand that God is light, I can never understand the Old Testament's teaching about who God is in his holiness, absolute separation from evil. I can never understand the deep meanings of, of the worship he prescribed in terms of the sacrificial ceremonial system. I'll never be able to understand the beautiful prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Unless I see God is light, I cannot see how far, far my sin separates me from this holy God. Unless I know God is light, 
I cannot know Jesus or how his cross is the perfect union of these companion truths that God is both light and love. This is what John is referencing when he says, I write this to you. Which leads us back to the text where he continues, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John encourages Christ followers not to sin. But he understands that Christ followers do sin all the time. And so the question is, what happens then? When I sin, does God just wave his hand and say, uh, no problem, better luck next time? No, God is pure light. And so my sin never just disappears with a wave or a wink. And to show this truth in a verbal picture, John draws back the curtain so I get a glimpse of the seriousness with which God extends his forgiveness to me day by day. And when John draws back this curtain, what I see is a courtroom. This courtroom scene is implied by John's word for advocate. Uh, the Greek word translated advocate is parakletos. Uh, it's the ancient word paraklete, which is a legal term for a counselor who defends someone in a court of law. Now, I apologize, by the way, if I say the word parakeet instead of paraclete. It's just it's something that happens to me, and I just, I can't get my mind to not say parakeet. I'm trying to do it, but if I do it, this is all about forgiveness, people. Forgiveness <laughs> behind the scenes, all right? So in the courtroom, the paraclete was the one who spoke. The paraclete was the one who spoke to the judge on behalf of the accused. The paraclete speaks. Keep that in mind. So what happens to my sin? Uh, how does God forgive my sin? Well, John pulls back the curtain to reveal a courtroom where I stand accused and guilty before this perfect God of light. But when all seems lost and I seem to be condemned to separation from God for all time, someone stands up. It's Jesus, the perfect son of God. And when Jesus rises, the spiritual world falls silent. And in the silence, Jesus shatters the quiet by speaking to my defense. Jesus speaks, the Father who is the judge agrees, and I am completely forgiven. Jesus speaks, and I walk away free. So what does Jesus say? That's coming next. But first, uh, just remember that this courtroom scene is just a metaphor for a spiritual reality. Uh, remember, John is not saying that 
God the Father wears robes or hammers a gavel. He is certainly not implying that the Father wants to condemn us, but Jesus has to talk him out of it. No, no, no. Remember that the plan of salvation comes from the Father's loving heart, that he initiated the whole plan of salvation in Jesus' cross to fulfill the dual truths that God is both light and love. So remember that the Father loves us and the courtroom is figurative. But it is figurative language that is showing the reality that God does never wink or wave off sin when he forgives me behind the scenes. Behind the curtain, the courtroom drama continues in this next phrase where Jesus writes of his best friend Jesus, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in these words, uh, John and Jesus explain that Jesus is a very unusual defense attorney. Uh, Jesus is a defense attorney who declares that his client is utterly and completely guilty. But that Jesus is this defense attorney who takes on the punishment that his client deserves. The punishment is the death sentence, and this is the penalty that Jesus takes as the atoning sacrifice for my sins. This phrase, atoning sacrifice, is a translation of an, one, another one Greek word that is another legal term that means paid the debt in full, or account settled, or punishment fulfilled. And this one Greek word answers the question of what Jesus says in my defense in the courtroom. Uh, but before I tell you what Jesus says as my advocate, I need to tell you what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not plead for mercy on my behalf. Uh, these words that we're studying today I've known about this uh, analogy of the courtroom in John's uh, uh, letter here for a long time. But uh, for a long time, I misunderstood the key and central message. By mistake, I used to picture the courtroom drama uh, like this. I sin, and then my sin file falls uh, before the perfect judge, God the Father. And the Father says, that's it, Steve is condemned. But then Jesus stands up and says, no, no, Father, uh, please have mercy on Steve. Give him another chance. He's trying, he's getting better over time. So go easy on him, as a favor to me. I died for him, so have some mercy on him. And then I pictured the Father saying, well, all right, Jesus, considering all you've done, I'll forgive him, but this behavior has got to change. Do you see what I was doing? I was picturing Jesus pleading my case by asking God to have mercy on me and my behavior, which is not very comforting because I sin all the time. 
So Jesus has to keep being dragged into the courtroom to plead for mercy over me with the judge saying a few seconds later, Steve did it again. And Jesus says, yeah, but please have mercy on him because he's working on it. And then a few seconds later, Jesus is having to come back and saying, you know, Father, please have mercy on him. Give him one more chance. And over time, I picture Jesus rolling his eyes as he has to come back again and say the same same thing into the courtroom. I pictured Jesus' defense getting weaker and weaker. You know, Father, Steve's been eating a lot of sugar lately. It kind of gets fogged up. I think he called me a parakeet a little while ago. You know, I think his shoes are too tight. You know, this kind of, I pictured Jesus' case growing weaker and weaker and the Father's patience growing thinner and thinner until finally the Father says, Jesus, I love you. But Let's face it, Steve's a loser. No more chances. No more chances, no more mercy. I've had it with him. He's condemned, period. And that's the way I pictured it. And this scenario made me feel very insecure. If my forgiveness is a plea for mercy and a promise of good or better behavior, I'm sunk because I know the darkness of my heart. But then I read more carefully what John teaches here in 1 John, and I realized that I had the courtroom picture all wrong. I realized that when Jesus stands up and pleads my case before the Father, Jesus does not plead for mercy. Jesus appeals to justice. It goes back to this second Greek term translated atoning sacrifice. From the moment that I choose Jesus as my savior, from that moment, my sins are paid for. My punishment is fulfilled. The debt is gone. My account is settled by what Jesus did on the cross for me. So every time that my sin file comes into that courtroom, Jesus stands up and this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, Father, here are the nail scars in my hands and my feet. Steve is guilty, but I have paid for his sins in full. And since I have already took the punishment and I paid the debt in full, justice demands that Steve be forgiven and set free. Father, you are just, and it would be unjust for Steve's sin to be punished twice. I took the penalty in full. Steve must go free. And if you understand this, then you understand what John writes a few sentences earlier. This is in 1 John chapter one, and there is a word that seems out of place in verse nine, which reads, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The word that doesn't seem to make sense here is the word just. We would expect it to say, uh, God is faithful and merciful to forgive all our sins. But it doesn't say that. It says that justice is what's in mind here. That God's justice is what forgives us. And now you know 
Why? If you have received Jesus as your savior, then Jesus is your paraclete who stands up in your defense and points to his nail-scarred hands and feet and secures your forgiveness based on his appeal to justice and not mercy. And you may be saying, okay, I get it. It's justice, not mercy. But I don't see how this really relates to my everyday life. Oh, this truth makes a huge difference. For instance, understanding Jesus' atoning sacrifice means I become free from works righteousness. Uh, When I used to picture uh, Jesus pleading for mercy on my behalf, and the promise that I would do better, uh, it led me to feel chained to continued works and trying to perform better for God. That's works righteousness. But then I understood that Jesus' atoning sacrifice satisfies justice, and that means that I understand that I am free from trying to earn anything from God. Jesus pays my debt, not because of a promise that I've made to improve, uh, but simply because of who I am. As, a, as his believer, as a follower, I'm free uh, to do good work and <clears throat> to live like Jesus just out of my love and gratitude to the Savior, not out of trying to proving something. Next, understanding Jesus' sacrifice means I've become free from guilt and shame. When Adam and Eve uh, sinned in that picture of the Garden of Eden, their guilt led them to hide from God and hide from each other. But when I understand what Jesus says in the courtroom, I hear God declaring that I am guilt-free, that I am free from shame. I am free to be the person that he made me to be. I'm free to, to stop pretending and stop posturing. And I am who he says I am. And he says that I am a completely loved, cherished, adopted child of God. And finally, when I understand his sacrifice of Jesus, I become free from the fear of death. A few years ago, I was on a flight, one of those flights, uh, returning to LaGuardia during a windy, stormy night. And uh, it was a successful flight. Uh, Successful because uh, the guy next to me was sleeping. And so when the flight attendant came with those bags of pretzels, uh, put a bag of pretzels on my uh, guy next to me on on his flight table, he was sleeping. He never missed it. Near the end of the flight, the attendants started collecting those uh, soda cups, and the pilot was announcing that it was time to land. And then all of a sudden, several things happened that convinced me and my fellow passengers that we were going to crash. The weather grew really severe. Uh, Wind, uh, thunder, lightning right outside our windows. There was these strange engine noises. There were violent dips in altitude. And there were the way the attendants looked worried and talking to each other in whispers. And some of the passengers began to panic and cry. It seemed like the plane was going to crash. And my first reaction was fear. Uh, I thought, I'm not ready to die. I, I'm just, I don't want to die. And I thought about standing before this perfect God of light, and I thought, I'm not ready to see God. And I just felt this overwhelming guilt in the thought of standing before God. I felt guilty about my inconsistent prayer life. I felt guilty about losing battle after battle with selfishness, and I felt guilty about taking the guy's pretzels and... <laughs> 
And I was afraid to die, and there was nothing I could do to stop the fear. You know, psychologists will tell you that, you know, one way, there are some techniques that you can do to try to defeat fear. You can calmly tell yourself that you're overreacting. Uh, you can uh, try to distract yourself by thinking about something else. What I can tell you is that when the engine is screaming and turbulence is shaking the suitcases out of the overhead bin, and the guy next to you is waking up and looking for his pretzels, these techniques do not work. <laughs> I was afraid. But then God reminded me of the truths that we're studying here today. Uh, I thought of me standing before God and Jesus rising up to say, Father, I know this one. I paid for his debt with my blood. I was pierced for his transgressions. I was crushed for his iniquities. It would be unjust to punish him because the punishment has already come upon me. You are just, and justice demands that this one be completely forgiven and welcomed home as a beloved child. And remembering this truth took away my fear of death in that moment when nothing else could. Understanding Jesus' sacrifice set me free long before we safely touched ground. So be free. Be free. Be free today because what your friend Jesus did on the cross for you and continues to do for you behind the scenes by speaking up for you so that you are completely forgiven today and tomorrow and each day leading into eternal life when the God of both light and love welcomes you behind the curtain home as his forever child. We want to thank you for watching and listening to our sermons online, and we hope that uh, you will be inspired to live more like Jesus through these. Please check out blackrock.org for more information about our church. Know that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and also uh, know that you can give uh, to BlackRock and to our ministry through PushPay, through our mobile app, and on our website. Your uh, donations and your support of our ministry allows us to have uh, these videos online and for us to impact our community.